Good evening, everybody. <clears throat> Welcome to the last class in uh, the last session uh, in our uh, in our Dune class to, uh, to this uh, this time around. This has been really fun uh, uh, doing Dune with you guys. Um, I know when, when I first announced that uh, we'd be doing twelve weeks <laughs> on Dune, I know there were some people who were a little skeptical or uh, thinking that uh, it. Uh, was perhaps a little bit much. I don't think so. And in fact, we're going to be rushing uh, to get towards the end of it uh, here tonight. My goal is to get to the end uh, and, uh, and, and do some sort of final assessment of the end of the story and where we end up. But we have a lot to talk about uh, between now and then. So anyway, um, I hope that uh, some further you know, conversation will continue in our uh, discussion forums uh, on the MythCard site. Um, you know, and there will be there will be uh, plenty of opportunities to uh, uh, to talk about that stuff. But actually, I want to um, start with a, uh, a, a quick update uh, about our campaign. We're still doing our fundraising campaign uh, for to, for the Mythgard Academy to make sure that our next year could happen. Um, as you guys know, our original goal was fourteen thousand uh, dollars, which would cover our expenses for the year to keep everything running. Uh, here at Mythgard and uh, uh, make sure that we can continue to offer these classes and to make them available for everybody to both to participate in and to uh, view after the fact um, in uh, uh, for free. And we have been able to do that. I think I announced last week that we've already, we already met our, uh, our initial goal, which is just fantastic, and uh, that I sort of announced an additional thing that I wasn't sure we were going to be able to do, but something that I've always wanted to do was to be able to bring in special guest speakers to do a uh, to do a guest lecture series on top of our regular uh, book series uh, for next year, so that we could have some some more uh, really cool, interesting content from people who are not me, um, and to sort of supplement our discussions uh, of the book. Um, so, and you know, that's uh, we're already more than halfway to that goal. Um, we are currently uh, over 21,000 now. We're at 150% of our initial goal. Um, uh, we've just been overwhelmed by the, uh, uh, by the reaction from you guys, by, uh, by, uh, by your generosity uh, and your faithfulness. And we're, so we're going to be able to make these things happen. We're, uh, the, the, the goal to be able to do a full series, I'm thinking one, uh, one uh, sort of prominent uh, guest lecture every other month, um, for the for the course of this coming year, as so we're still about five thousand dollars shy of meeting that stretch goal, but it looks like we're probably going to do that. Um, so uh, so anyway, I, I'm 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 very very excited about. I'm very excited to see how that's going to happen. And in fact, um, you know, we still have three weeks left uh, in the campaign actually, and uh, the reaction that you guys have had has really sort of led me to start thinking about things that I wasn't really sort of letting myself think about before. There are a bunch of, there's, there, there, there are some, some pretty major things that I have been wanting to do um, as far as helping to sort of develop and build and bring together um, uh, things for our community. And I'm thinking in particular about uh, the MythGuard website. There are a lot of things that I would love to do um, to be able to provide more content and to support more content and um, again, more stuff that it's not just me doing classes, but uh, being for Mythgard to be a more proactive force in creating an, um, a, a you know a broad academic community um, for fantasy and science fiction, you know, for speculative uh, literature. And so anyway, I've, I've got some some 
really uh, kind of big dreams for some of this stuff, and I hadn't uh, really thought that that was gonna. It was kind of in my uh, list of uh, things of you know sort of dreams for a couple years down the road. Um, but it looks like maybe actually we might be able to do some of this stuff sooner. So I'll I'll be doing an announcement soon to talk a little bit more about this. I'm think what I'm thinking about it uh, basically. Um, is we'd love to do a major revision of our website, which would enable us to do a whole bunch more stuff that I have in mind. I'll talk a little bit more about those plans uh, moving forward. As if we still have five thousand dollars more to go before we meet our first stretch goal, but um, I think there's a there's a there's a bunch more stuff that we can do um, if uh, if we're able to even go beyond that. So. Um, as I said, I'll give you some uh, some more information on that uh, uh, as we as we move forward. But it's pretty exciting to start opening up uh, some of these things, and it has just been uh, just it's it's been so great uh, to partner with you guys, and I am really happy um, for how we are able to move forward. I mean, every the more that we're able to raise in our annual fundraiser here, the more stable this institution is going to be able to be for years to come. Um, you know, it really is. <clears throat> an investment in the future of making sure that Mythgard can stick around. So uh, that's uh, that's just been an awesome thing. So um, I th <laughs> just getting a notification. We just got another uh, uh, another uh, very generous uh, donation. Actually, just as I was talking, uh, so we now are down to four thousand dollars that we need to raise for the uh, uh, to meet our first stretch goal. Actually, um, anyway, so thank you, thank you guys again, and I'll be telling you more. I wanted to also mention. Um, we're going to be culminating our uh, fundraising campaign on November, Saturday, November 8th. Um, and like, for those of you who remember, last year we did a, a major webathon event. Um, we're going to um, we're going to be uh, 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 we're we're going <laughs> to. Patrick says I shouldn't stop talking. Well, actually, Patrick, it's just about what I'm about to talk about because we're going to do a webathon. We're going to do we're going to do another one. Um, it's not going to be quite so long this year, um, but uh, we're going to do a a, a big uh, a broadcast. It's going to have a whole bunch of different segments um, on that Saturday, which is going to be the culminating event uh, of our fundraising campaign. There'll be um, you know some uh, special uh, some special talks uh, and events. We're going to have a, a special extra. Riddles in the Dark episode. We're gonna do uh, a bunch of things. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be talking with people about Doctor Who for the first time ever. I'm very excited. I'm very I'm a, I'm a new Doctor Who watcher, so we're gonna we're gonna we're, we're gonna talk about Doctor Who um, and my love for Christopher Eccleston. But anyway, um, so <laughs> for uh, th there's there's a bunch of stuff that we're gonna do. They're gonna be sort of special uh, special perks and giveaways. They're gonna be connected. Uh, with that day, so uh, Saturday, November eighth. Uh, keep that uh, keep that date in mind. It should be it should be a lot of fun. So, um, okay, um, let's get to Dune so that we can uh, we can I can come to the end and not feel wholly inadequate about uh, having been able to 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 finish Dune. Um, I want to start off looking at. Paul's relationship with, and I mentioned last time that we were gonna we were gonna start with this, um, looking at his relationship with the two different groups, which were coupled together way back at the beginning by the Reverend Mother um, uh, uh, Guys Helen Mohayam um, back on Kaladin. You remember she was pair, pairing the Bene Gesserits and the Guild, the Spacing Guild, as these sort of two divergent schools 
which were like the remnant of the humans, right? The special training institutes that grew up after the Butlerian Shihad. So we, we, we saw them connected, and the one thing which they seem to have in common um, is, well, two things, I guess, you could say they have in common. The major thing that they have in common is both of them trying to control things from behind the scenes, right? Um, the Spacing Guild, because of their absolute monopoly on space travel, so they have a stranglehold over everybody. Nobody could move, can get off their own planets um, uh, without the uh, assistance of the Spacing Guild. And it's clear that it's the Spacing Guild um, that has the... In, in, in a sense, the ultimate authority. They're the ones. You know, Paul wants to tweak the nose of the emperor, like, okay, that's that's a little bit rash. But if you do that, it's just a question of, like, the Fremen versus the Sardaukar, and they feel pretty confident about that. You know, when Paul starts defying the Spacing Guild, right, that's when Jessica gets really worried, right? This is the Guild. You can't talk to them that way. Um, the Spacing Guild, though they seem to be in some ways less insidious, than the Bene Gesserit. There's, you know, we don't we don't know of anything sort of equivalent to like the Missionaria Protectiva. I mean, the way in which they have sort of put, you know, the the, the Bene Gesserits have kind of, you know, put their, um, uh, you know, uh, arranged their points of manipulation through multiple houses and multiple societies is different from the way that it seems that the Spacing Guild operates. But, of course, the other thing they have in common, as Philip Lord was just pointing out, um, uh, is the link with the spice, right? Both of them rely for their sort of core function, in a sense, on the spice. More, more so the Spacing Guild than the Bene Gesserits, right? It's the Spacing Guild, you know, Philip, as you were emphasizing, that it's 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 it is it is the spacing guild specifically over whose head Paul is holding the sword when he's threatening to destroy the spice, right? Um, he's not threatening the Bene Gesserits with this, though he does mention the fact that you know, and of course, you know, Re Reverend Mother, the Bene Gesserits are going to be screwed too if we destroy the spice, right? Because once they've used the spice liquor um, for the Reverend, you know, the truth trance, the other. Methods. There are other ways to do it, but the other methods won't work after you've done that. Um, so anyway, there's there's um, uh, that's another link that they have. Both of them are dependent upon the spice um, in that in the, for the this sort of deepest level of like insight and in a sense of power directly in the case of the Spacing Guild, a little more indirectly in the case of the Bene Gesserits um, through the spice. Um, yeah, James says the Bene Gesserit have goals, but the Spacing Guild seems to exist only to perpetuate themselves. Yeah, James, in that way, too, the, the, I agree with you that the goals of the Spacing Guild, I mean, it's not 100% clear. Okay, you know, they, 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 their plan is to exist and to carry on existing, right, and to maintain their monopoly. Um, but it isn't... The, the Bene Gesserits have a cause, right? Um, they have a goal. Their breeding program has an end in mind the production of the Kwisatz Haderach. Now, it's never been 100% clear what they do then, right? Okay, um, I mean, and of course, that's sort of the irony of the end, right? When Paul comes in and says, hey, um, Kwisatz Haderach, here I am, in fact, the Kwisatz Haderach, right? Um, but now that I'm here, everything you 
tried to build, instead of this being the fulfillment of your entire plans, everything you tried to build falls apart instead. Um, <laughs> sorry about that, right? Um, but again, it seemed that they didn't that that, that part of their plan um, uh, uh, wasn't really too well worked out. Um, it uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded uh, uh, briefly of. Uh, um, Thorin Oakenshield and company discussing dragon slaying up on the slopes of the mountain. Right now that they've gotten to the mountain and they're like, uh, okay, now what? Right, there's a dragon and we have no plan. Um, that seems to be the case, Nancy uh, Fosberg says. They need the Kwisatz Haderach to tell them what to do when they get the Kwisatz Haderach. Um, yes, yes, exactly, Erica. That, that, uh, 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 one might be tempted to point out that that was always a weak point in their plan, just like Bilbo was tempted. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Gerald Michael makes a really interesting point. Says the Spacing Guild has to know where renegade houses have gone, and probably they still trade with them. You know, there's a potential for an entire parallel civilization also linked together by the Spacing Guild. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, the 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 power of the Spacing Guild is enormous. I mean, they are the single most powerful institution. Um, in the galaxy, right? I mean, there's no way I mean, in the universe. There's, there's, um, the. I mean, it seems simple enough to say they have an absolute monopoly over space travel. At, at first, it just seems, sounds like when we hear about that, it sounds like a purely commercial monopoly, right? Or I mean, a big deal. I mean, that's pretty lucrative, right? They control all trade. You know, they have an absolute monopoly over all trade. Well, okay. You know, um, that sounds uh, that sounds good. Then, of course, we begin to see. Um, a little bit more um, of the political implications of that, right? Based upon their rates, they can determine whether or not, you know, they, they can essentially decide who is able to make war upon whom, right? So now, again, what we don't see, it's possible, of course, that we just don't see it, um, but what, what we don't see is them, you know, sort of the machinations of the guild to try to bring things about. Um, if the Spacing Guild had something to gain from the Harkonnen Atreides thing. You know, we see Atreides versus Harkonnen, right? And then we kind of back outwards a little bit and we see the Emperor and his motivations and what he, the game that he's playing um, between them. But of course, beyond that, there's the Spacing Guild, right? And the game that they're playing, what are they up to? Um, and, you know, did they have something to gain there? Were they, um, you know, were they, uh, 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 were they actually contriving the downfall of House Atreides for some reason. I mean, does, it, does, does that go back uh, to them? Um, but, um, but yeah, they don't... I, I, I agree with Noel. They don't seem to have... Uh, they don't seem to have quite the cunning um, of the Bene Gesserit, or at least not the intention, so far as we know. Uh, I go back... Um, uh, uh, let's see who was saying it originally... Um, I'm sorry, I'm totally, uh, I'm totally, totally blanking here. Um, yes, James, thank you. James uh, Stevens was saying that um, the, 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 their ends seem to be simpler, just like simple self-preservation, right? Um, but of course, as uh, as Gerald is pointing out, sort of the implications, Gerald, of what you're saying, right, are that to a certain extent they absolutely monopolize all policy in ways that Bene Gesserit's don't. And the Bene Gesserit's influence politics, right? You know, they believe that they are manipulating everything. They are manipulating many things. Um, you know, they have this secret manipulation control. 
the Spacing Guild. I mean, no, uh, you know, even even sort of the knowledge of what is going on. I mean, you know, Gerald, as you say, whole parallel civilizations could exist. Um, it's um, uh, the, the 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 kind of the, the the nature of the control that they have over political events is of just a fundamentally different order than the Bene Gesserit. So again, it's one thing to manipulate the outcome of events. It's another thing to just say, you know, like this war is happening or this war is not happening. Or as happens at the end of the book, um, we're gonna drop our rates to the point where every, you know, even the poorest houses are able to, to come here. They, they have the power to create the kind of upheaval that happens um, there at the end um, because their monopoly is so absolute. Um, yeah, but anyway, um, yeah, Noel says uh, the Bene Gesserit are feared as witches while the guild is so pervasive that they're tolerated. Um, yes, yeah, the, I know I find that really interesting. I mean, to some extent, of course, that it seems it's gendered, right? I mean, the Bene Gesserits are women, um, and the Spacing Guild, though there's a question about whether or not they're human, <clears throat> um, seem to be at least the, all of the representatives of theirs that we meet are men. Um, and so the, the whole witch and witchcraft thing seems to be, to, I mean, to me, it seems at least partially gendered. It's, uh, um, uh, Thufar Hawat seems to have an issue not just with Bene Gesserits, but to some extent with women. Um, at least that's what I hear in him. But, um, uh, but, but I don't want to ascribe it only to that. I mean, I think that it's, uh, uh, it's a cop-out just to say the distrust of the Bene Gesserits is, um, is merely be, you know, because of sort of a, you know, a, 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 a deep-seated misogyny in these cultures. There may be that, but I think, I, I, I think it's a cop-out to explain it in that way. Um, of course, as we see, the Bene Gesserit has, the, the, the Bene Gesserits as, as an order have ritually merited suspicion. Um, they have indeed set out to manipulate everybody. Um, and if you are suspicious of them and their motives, you are wise. Um, and it turns out you are correct. Um, so uh, I, I think that that's, um, um, yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I, the person whom I suspect of being Dr. Ed Powell, but who has signed on this evening as El Herrera, Prince with a Thousand Enemies, um, uh, says the guild has the galaxy by the throat and the Bene Gesserit are tolerated as, as a possible counter to the guild. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's... It's interesting, you know, I wonder... I'm trying to think of positive evidence for that, that is, positive evidence of the Bene Gesserit being, being seen or even being used. I don't disagree with it because it seems like a very... Um, it seems very much in keeping with sort of the spirit of the political atmosphere that we've seen throughout Dune, that the Bene Gesserit believe that they're manipulating all things from behind the scenes, but many people suspect them of doing this. They might not suspect all, they might not know of all of the things that they do, and they might not understand their ultimate ends. As we were suggesting, it seems perhaps the Bene Gesserit themselves don't understand their ultimate ends, but, um, but nevertheless, is it possible that there are those who perceive what the Bene Gesserit are doing or perceive that they're doing something and are, you know, sort of appearing to submit, to, you know, letting the Bene Gesserit carry on in order to have a separate, uh, you know, locus of power. 
to, 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 to put against the guilt. Again, that seems to me entirely in keeping with the kind of spirit of politics um, that we see in this book. But I can't think of any really active, um, positive pieces of evidence that I would point to to suggest that there's anyone in the book who's actively thinking that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, let's, uh, let's move on to the text here, though. I want to look at the final confrontation between Paul and first the Bene Gesserits in the person of uh, the Reverend Mother. Uh, Guy Salem Mohayam, and um, the um, uh, and the the and and then the guild afterwards. Philip, I really like Philip Lord's observation. He says it's possible that the Bene Gesserit actively, uh, uh, you know, created or encouraged the misogyny in order to allay suspicion. You know, Philip. Again, I can totally buy that. I could totally buy uh, the fact that even like these sort of very misogynist tendencies are it's like being used as a kind of shield or manipulation. Nothing seems likelier than that, uh, than that kind of thing. And you see, it's one of the things that I find so delightful about the Dune world is that the way in which we and we've looked at this at various points um, along the way in the past um, that there's. Um, there's uh, um, um, there's a clear prompting that we have from the text to interpret things this way, right? You know that we, I'm thinking back to the 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 Baron Harkonnen and Fade Routha scene that we were looking at before. Um, you know our conversation about the um, the Fenrings and their secret language that we were having earlier. Um, the ways in which this text has sort of trained us. To, you know, to look for double meanings, to think of the of the motivations that might lie behind apparently innocent remarks, to think about you know what are the what are their real motivations behind you know what are the the the, the schemes within schemes within schemes, um, so that you know in the end even things for which there really isn't active um, evidence of that kind, uh, n nevertheless it, it seems it seems quite plausible. Uh, and I don't think we can rule it out just because it's not explicitly mentioned, because most things are not explicitly said um, by the people who are, uh, who, are, who, are, who are doing them. But anyway, as I said, let's get to the text. So here's Paul and the Reverend Mother. Paul raised his voice. Observe her, comrades. This is a Bene Gesserit Reverend Mother, patient in a patient cause. She could wait with her sisters 90 generations for the proper combination of genes and environment to produce the one person their schemes required. Observe her. She knows now that the 90 generations have produced that one person. Here I stand, but I will never do her bidding. Jessica, the old woman screamed, silence him. Silence him yourself, Jessica said. Paul glared at the old woman. For your part in all this, I could gladly have you strangled, he said. You couldn't prevent it he snapped as she stiffened in rage, but I think it better punishment that you live out your years, never able to touch me or bend me to a single thing your scheming desires. Jessica, what have you done? the old woman demanded. I'll, I'll, I'll give you only one thing, Paul said. You saw part of what the race needs, but how poorly you saw it. Okay. Um... What does the race need? Never mind. We'll come back to that. Um, 
What was their plan? What was their plan? What can we understand about their their plan based on based on what we see, what evidence we get in this in this book? What was their plan? I don't know for sure. But what it sounds like based on what Paul describes here and based on what we heard earlier about the uh, um, uh, about the the Quetzaltenatl is to yeah, as Kevin Morgan says, control the genes that control the throne. Yes, when the Quetzaltenatl comes, they would want him in power, wouldn't they? The male Bene Gesserit, right? The one who is sort of the fulfillment of the potential that they have been tapping into, the the ultimate instance of their training, of their whole approach, right? The one who, so all of their manipulations have been designed to set this up. Um, they, the Bene Gesserits, would control him, right? They would rule through him, but they would rule, right? So we see there's, there's this sort of extreme... That there, there would seem to be, therefore, a, a sort of extra painful irony in Paul's words here, right? He's seizing power. He's the Quetzaltenatl, and he's going to become emperor. It's all working out kind of according to plan, except not at all according to plan, except he's seceding from them. Um, and, of course, we see her reacting to the fact that, yeah, Tom Hillman says they assume he'll be on their side. You know, oops. Yeah, yeah, a rash assumption as it turns out. Um, yeah, so, the, I mean, the terrible realization, but of course, we see what upsets her more than anything else in these conversations is the fact that he's revealing all this stuff, right? I mean, he's outing the Bene Gesserits. He's saying aloud things which some have suspected um, to some extent, but um, uh, but nobody, you know, nobody says, nobody, nobody sort of has dared to utter, which could still be denied, you know? Um, and now he's, he's revealing all these things. Notice, by the way, throughout this conversation, she never addresses him. She's always addressing herself to Jessica. Um, she's talking to her only. Paul, they're having this like almost three-way conversation, except Jessica does respond back to her. Um, but Paul talks to her, and she talks to Jessica. I take that as a form of sort of desperate denial on her part, right? She still believes that in talking to Jessica, she's talking to the one in charge, right? Jessica raised him. Jessica gave birth to him, her choice, Jessica's choice, um, and then raised him and trained him in the Bene Gesserit ways, right? So... Um, she, Jessica, therefore, obviously, is going to be the um, the the instrument of the Bene Gesserits in, in you know the representative of them um, in uh, in in sort of training and managing the Quisans Hadarak, right? Um, so there seems there seems to be a kind of desperation, but I, but again, I think de desperation linked with linked with denial. Um, Kevin Morgan asks a great question. Why is Paul so angry at her? 
What does he mean when he says, for your part in all this, I could gladly have you strangled? Why? What's he going to strangle her for? What was her part in all this? What do you think about that? As you're thinking about that and typing, one other comment I would want to make. Um, uh, it's, um, you know, Philip Menzies asks this simple question, how could the Bene Gesserit ever hope to control such a being, right? I mean, wasn't their whole plan, if their plan was to produce the Kwisatz Haderach and then use him as a way to sort of transition into a more open power, a more Spacing Guild-esque power, right? Um, a more active control, if, if that was the plan? It seems a dumb plan, actually, or at least a foolish plan. Um, what separates the Kwisatz Haderach from the Bene Gesserit as they have existed is that he has all of their insights and capability and a whole extra category of insights and things that they don't, they can't even contemplate, that they can't even turn to, right? Um, it's not just that he will be like the ultimate Bene Gesserit, he will be something, by definition, he will be something fundamentally other than the Bene Gesserit something of which the Bene Gesserit is merely a subset, right? But which is integrated into a whole which is fundamentally different from them. Um, so even, it seems, that initial plan um, was, um, um, was something that um, was sort of naive and uh, uh, short-sighted uh, on their part. Um, yeah, let's see, Nancy says, I think he blames her for bringing about him, Paul, and hoping for a person with the powers that have only made his life miserable. Um, yeah, that she contributed in making him, I mean, remember, the whole infection with the terrible purpose thing happened at the Gom Jabbar, right? I mean, it was, it was stirred to life by her, but even beyond that, right? You know, the training that he was given, remember, it's one of the things that he points to as one of the circumstances which led to the um, you know, to the awakening of this, uh, this, this additional awareness and everything. Um, you know, if it, if it, if he hadn't been, you know, uh, sort of cultivated by his mother, um, you know, the Bene Gesserit, he, you know, this wouldn't have happened. Um, so Nancy, I think that there is a kind of bitterness. That, like, the, there is a sense in which he seems to be saying, kind of vaguely, "This is all your fault. You did this to me," um, or even in a sense, the jihad is your fault, right? Um, because you made all this possible. Um, yeah, Cynthia Smith was pointing to the same thing, her setting in motion his terrible purpose. Um, yeah, yeah. Philip Lord says, of course, you know, let's not forget, you know, pushing the pieces which led to the Duke, his father's death. Um, you know, when she says, you know, again, he says, uh, you know, for your part in all this. Again, one of the questions, of course, is not just what is her part, but what is all this, right? Um, uh, in the Atreides thing, you know, Philip, I, that might be, uh, that might be part of it. Um, yeah, Gerald says he's angry at being made the instrument of the jihad. I think that that's, uh, um, I think that that's um, a, a good refinement of what we were saying, uh, of what we were saying before. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah. Yeah, Patrick says, did they assume the Kwisatz Haderach would be grateful for their efforts to create him? Patrick, it almost seems so, doesn't it? You know, that, like, the Kwisatz Haderach should be, you know, aware of how special he is and that, you know, and, and embrace his, 
um, role as like the ultimate Bene Gesserit, that he would be grateful to the, you know, to this, you know, to the patient patient work of the, um, of you know the the, the generations of Bene Gesserits that have come before. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sharon Powell says, I think uh, Paul's anger at the Bene Gesserit is about their control of people. No one likes to be controlled. Um, yeah, even of course, remember they're responsible for this in other ways too. I mean, the Missionaria Protectiva played its role, right? Um, they didn't fully understand the role that it was playing. Their idea was a simpler one, right? The sort of simple sham that they had in mind, the simple sham that Jessica is initially playing out, um, which of course turns into something much greater. You know, the 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 religious elements that have been cultivated on Arrakis. You know, Muad'Dib could never be the jihad. Wouldn't happen if it weren't for that. Um, so they played their part there too. Then that might be an ignorant part, but much of what the Bene Gesserit was, ironically, most of much of what the Bene Gesserit did um, was um, was in ignorance. Um, yeah, yeah. Because both uh, Neil and James Stevens are pointing to her abandonment of uh, Duke Leto for the father. Nothing. Um, yeah, that seems that seems possible. Kevin, I agree uh, with Kevin Morgan in the end, saying uh, um, she does seem to be sort of a nice surrogate for the Bene Gesserits as a whole. Um, and he sees the part that they, again, the the terrible purpose, the race consciousness, that this what is leading to the, to the jihad, this could never have, in a sense, it's the jihad, which is the culmination of their plan. This is what he says, you saw part of what the race needs, but how poorly you saw it, right? Yes, there was something within our race that was pushing for refinement, but it was for another reason, right? Um, uh, they and you could also say that they created the necessity for um, the jihad for the race. And what is the race consciousness trying to do? Mix up the gene pool, the gene pool which has been carefully controlled by the Bene Gesserits. Um, so they've created uh, they've created the situation, and by their breeding of the Kwisatz Haderach have brought about its instrument uh, as well. So again, I think these are ways in which we can see that idea of the Gomjabar infecting him with terrible purpose can be seen as a sort of a metaphor for this larger thing, and it seems possible that Paul himself is even thinking of it that way. Um, uh, yeah, as Tom says, if his mother was his enemy, the Bene Gesserit as a whole can, um, uh, can only be even more his enemy. Um, yeah, because Jessica at least deviates, right? She at least um, does not, in fact, um, toe the party line uh, with the Bene Gesserits, and so um, is, if guilty, less guilty than people like the Reverend Mother, um, who are very much Bene Gesserit party line. Um, more. A little bit more. Silence, Paul roared. The word seemed to take substance as it twisted through the air between them, under Paul's control. The old woman reeled back into the arms of those behind her, face blank with shock at the power with which he had seized her psyche. Jessica, she whispered. Jessica. I remember your gomjabar, Paul said. You remember mine. I can kill you with a word. The Fremen around the hall glanced knowingly at each other. Did the legend not say, and his words shall carry death eternal to those who stand against righteousness? Um, 
couple things here. One, again, we can see her still even in this moment when she has received what has to be the most direct proof for her, right, of his power, of, you know, who he is and of what he is and of how he's exerting that power. Um, you know, her, you know, he, he has the great control, capital G, capital C, right? Um, uh, but she's still crying out to Jessica, right? Um, as if Jessica could do something or explain, you know, now her just calling out to her, Jessica, Jessica, um, is uh, much more uncertain exactly what she's saying or what she's implying to Jessica by calling out her name here. Um, and Paul says that this is his Gom Jabbar, right? He can kill her with a word. In what sense is this his Gom Jabbar, right? His power over her, his voice control of her is like the needle at her neck. Right, the Gom Jabbar itself. Um, what she is enduring right now is the box of pain that he is, um, the box of pain that he is inflicting on her, right? Um, uh, to test to see if she's human. I mean, playing out the parallels there um, would be kind of interesting, but um, what I want to focus on here is thinking about the um, relationship between the Bene Gesserit manipulations and the prophecies, or rather between the prophecies that they planted and what actually happened. Um, he is the fulfillment of the prophecies. This is true in a couple senses, right? He is the Kwisatz Haderach. He is the one that the Bene Gesserit have been predicting would come and looking forward to and plotting for, right? Um, he is also the Fremen Messiah, right? He is the Mahdi uh, of the Fremen. He is the Lizan al-Gaib, the fulfillment of all of their prophecies. Um, we've been, you know, I've been suggesting, I don't think I've convinced you all, but I've been suggesting that there seems to be something more there. Um, that when we see Paul fulfilling the prophecies, it's more than just a sham and more than just a coincidence. Um, and to me, the thing... Um, to, to sort of explain, in a sense, what I think it is, I think it's it comes back to the race consciousness. I think that what we are seeing is that, just as we've seen many times before, where the Bene Gesserit feel like they have the whole grid, right? Where they, they know what's really going on. They're the ones who see backstage, right? Everybody else is looking at the stage from the front, and they're fooled by what's going on, but the Bene Gesserits are the one who are behind the scenes pulling the strings, right? They're not going to fall for the puppet show. They're the ones who manipulate the puppets. Just shift my metaphors randomly. Um, but we've seen on several occasions that often that's an illusion, and the Benjamins themselves don't understand. And in particular, Paul, especially when compared to Jessica, as we've been seeing, um, uh, Paul and uh, um, Paul's insight, you know, his both his, not only the fact that he understood so much more than Jessica, but that he understood, like, he was able to kind of, like, see her grid from the outside. He understood how she was looking at things, right? And was able to, 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 to sort of understand the whole Bene Gesserit outlook. Um, so, again, we've seen that, 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 you know, they're not actually seeing that. There's a further backstage. There are strings attached to them, too, perhaps, that they don't see. And that, ultimately, is my argument about the relationship between the prophecies and the Missionaria Protectiva. Um, not trying to say... That they're not, that they're not even that Jessica isn't um, uh, uh, 
sort of perpetrating uh, or perpetuating sham, but that the Missionaria Protectiva themselves were manipulated, I believe, um, and that there is a force behind this prophecy. There is reality to it that goes beyond the sham. Um, and there, you know, especially it's, it's it, where I feel that hits most forcibly is in the Kynes chapter, the chapter where Kynes is un, to his own um, discomfort finding these prophecies which in which he doesn't really believe uh, being fulfilled in ways that he has a hard time resisting by the end. Um, yeah, James asks, is there a higher order that planted its own missionary protectiva within the Bene Gesserit? Yeah, sort of. I mean, I'm not suggesting there's actually like another race which is which is which has done this, but um, but yeah, they uh, you know, as Joe Michael says, they prophesied better than they knew. Um, yeah, yeah. Or as Patrick says, they knew more than they thought they did. Their fake prophecies ended up coming true uh, in 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 an unforeseen way. Um, yeah, I mean, it's that's. That is what I think happened uh, with the Bene Gesserits here. But look, this is this moment is really um, an important one to me because I feel right here near the very very end we get a kind of corrective. Um, I'm always tempted to think, like remember the scene with the Shadat Mapes and Jessica, right? Where again we saw Jessica was the knowing one. She was like, oh, I can manipulate this savage. She didn't say that exactly, but. She was acting that way, right? Um, you know, she knows all the strings to pull to, you know, to 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 pull the Shadat Mavis' strings, right? Um, and the question that I was posing for the first time when we were looking at that scene was, is it possible that the Fremen grid is actually, in a sense, truer or wider than the or more complete than the Bene Gesserit grid? The Bene Gesserit thinks that they're seeing the real thing. Um, here, it's possible that by the time we get to the end of book three, we might have come to believe that. I think there's some evidence for it, right? You know, this idea that the Fremen are who really have it right, right? Um, the Harkonnens have it completely wrong, and the Baron is an idiot at the end. You know, by the end, he's, he's exposed. The assumptions that he makes about the Fremen, his own cluelessness, catch up with him, right? Um, the Atreides had it the, the the emperor is more you know are, is 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 more on top of what's going on than the Harkonnens, right? The Atreides, well, one step ahead of the emperor, but it's the Fremen who really know what's what, and they are, uh, you know. Again, I, I'm not saying that I think that that's true. I'm saying that that seems to me to be the impression that the story can easily create, but. Um, what um, what happens in the end, right? What do we see? What do we see here? The Fremen around the hall glanced knowingly at each other. Did the legend not say, "And his word shall carry death eternal to those who stand against righteousness"? Doesn't that sound like a sham again? That is, in other cases, we have seen Jessica doing something shammy, right? But others, you know, but and the Fremen looking on and saying, seeing, oh, there's more, and you know, this is this is profound. And I think we've been pushed to agree with the Fremen. Yeah, there is something profound here. Um, the cynical Bene Gesserit outlook on this is actually not the right one. Even outlook on what they themselves are doing. Again, it's the Fremen who know. The Fremen 
that's not true here, right? The Fremen are mis are twist are in fact twisting what's going on. When he says I can kill you with a word, he's talking about something he's talking about the voice. They don't under, they don't seem to understand what's going on. His word shall carry death eternal to those who stand against righteousness. It's not it's not about damnation. That's not what he's talking about. It's not about death eternal. You know, we see here them taking Paul and Paul's legend and making it into a religious thing, right? Their own legends prompting them to do this. Their own legends don't seem to be... So, so again, here I think is a place where we see beyond the Fremen creed. Remember, um, what was uh, Gurney Halleck's phrase? Religious claptrap? Was that, was that his phrase? Did he use the word claptrap? Um... I want to make sure I'm quoting him right. Um, he repeats the phrase twice. Remind me of the words if I'm getting the word wrong. But you remember when he's saying, you know, is it this religious stuff um, that's leading Paul to do this, right? To, to you know, basically, it's when, when, when Gurney is so astounded that he's going to accept Fadewrath's challenge, Right? And Gurney Hawk's like, we won here. It's stupid for Paul to enter into a single combat with a Harkonnen who's going to betray him, far from the fact that Gurney wants to kill him himself. Um, but, um, uh, but, but anyway, it's... it's uh, he's asking the question, is Paul really buying into this? Does he really believe this? But again, we're reminded of that perspective. Gurney doesn't buy it, right? He doesn't, he doesn't buy into it. Um, he does hold himself aloof from it. And it sounds like that here. Right? Again, we too as readers, for the first time I think in a while, um, are invited to see the Fremen's religious reverence of Paul as something actually fanatical, as something which is not actually penetrating to the truth which the others can't understand. Um, so I think that that moment of resistance is uh, is interesting. It's, you know, it shows this sort of veneer of false spirituality that's just been imposed upon some of these things, and makes me wonder again, who's really pulling the strings? At the end of the day, we have the Bene Gesserit and the Fremen, but then there's, you know, the race consciousness, uh, you know, on top of uh, on top of all this. Um, you know, have they all? Bene Gesserits and Fremen alike all um, been uh, been played for fools. Um, anyway, okay, I'm not making good progress in my uh, uh, in my attempt to get prattle. Thank you, Alyssa. I knew it was something like that. Religious prattle—that's the phrase. Uh, I knew claptrap wasn't right, but it was in that direction. That kind of um, uh, sort of uh, uh, really uh, diminishing and. Uh, uh, um, Sort of dismissive phrase, religious prattle. Thanks, thanks, Alyssa. I appreciate that. That was going to bother me. Um, good. Yeah, it, it seems to be that when the when the Fremen when the Fremen are talking about carrying death eternal to those who stand against righteousness, it sounds like religious prattle, not like you know this sort of eerie truth that lay behind something the Bene Gesserits themselves couldn't understand. Um, but let's move on to the guild. Paul and the guild. What stays the guild's hand? Jessica whispered. They're searching for me, Paul said. Remember, this is beforehand. Um, 
this is before the confrontation, right? When he tells them the, uh, you know, the sky above Arrakis is full of ships. Think of that. The finest guild navigators, men who can quest ahead through time to find the safest course for the fastest highliners, all of them seeking me and unable to find me. How they tremble. They know I have their secret here. Paul held, held out his cupped hand. Without the spice, they're blind. Cheney found her voice. You said you see the now. Paul lay back, searching the spread out present, its limbs extending into the future and into the past, holding on to the awareness with difficulty as the spice illumination began to fade. Go do as I commanded, he said. The future is becoming as muddled for the guild as it is for me. The lines of vision are narrowing. In everything focuses here where the spice is, where they've dared not interfere before, because to interfere was to lose what they must have. But now they're desperate. All paths lead into darkness. The guild, of course, has this one weakness, right? They have this monopoly, and we talked before about how absolute uh, that monopoly is and how absolute the power it seems, or always nearly absolute the power it seems to give them. But it has a weakness. And what's more, it's a weakness that's beyond their control. It's on... It doesn't rely on trade. What they, they cannot do what they do. They cannot maintain their monopoly without the spice. And the spice is only on one planet. You don't have to be able to travel in space to be able to control the guild, to be able to have that, um, uh, that um, monopoly over the people who have the monopoly, and that's why I said they have to be secret, right? Because if anybody knew, if anybody says, if the people, if if the people who controlled Arrakis really came to understand that they they have power over the Almighty Guild, the game would be up, right? So they have had to conceal that, and that's what Paul himself perceives. And of course, we see the likeness between them. We see that this the Guild, like Paul, um, are looking into the future, right? We see them seeing you know, that they have prescient vision like Paul. So we see um, his insight into this, but we see the likeness, you know, both the likeness and the difference between them. Um, but of course, the likeness also sort of suggests what's Paul's weakness? Does Paul have a weakness? Um, is, uh, you know, does he too have a kind of... Now, you could say he's willing to sacrifice himself, right? He too relies on the spice, just like they do. They seem to want to play that card. We'll look at this in a second, right? Um, uh, you know, that basically, in destroying the spice, you would destroy yourself as well. But um, he, uh, he seems willing to make that sacrifice. Let's uh, move on here. Paul's assessment of the guild. And he thought then about the guild, the force that had specialized for so long that it had become a parasite, unable to exist independently, of the life upon which it fed. They had never dared grasp the sword, and now they could not grasp it. They might have taken Arrakis when they realized the error of specializing on melange awareness spectrum narcotic for their navigators. They could have done this, lived their glorious day, and died. Instead, they'd existed from moment to moment, hoping the seas in which they swam might produce a new host when the old one died. The guild navigators, gifted with limited prescience, had made the fatal decision. They'd, always, they'd chosen always the clear, safe course that leads ever downward into stagnation. 
Good. James says he's willing, Paul is willing to keep his hand in the track, right? He shows that he's human uh, and not an animal. Um, yeah, good, good. I like that. Um, Philip Menzies says he, he uh, follows, Paul follows his visions um, but doesn't shape them. The question here is clearly, you know, the guild, if the guild navigators have made this fatal decision, what decisions has Paul made? Um, they're choosing the clear, safe course that leads ever downward into stagnation. What choices is Paul making exactly? Um, what's the opposite of stagnation, by the way? Doesn't stagnation kind of, based on everything that we've heard described before about the race consciousness, doesn't stagnation sound like the opposite of jihad? Right? Isn't that what we've been told several times the jihad is meant to do? To break humankind out of a sort of genetic stagnation? Mix things up a bit? Right? Um, so Paul, in resisting the jihad, was being like the guild? Is that true? And that's not the same, of course. But... Uh, but the criticism here of how the guild navigators have employed their prescient vision, their limited prescient vision, um, seems to have some obvious relevance to Paul. Um, what's Paul's course like? I mean, it's easy to say, on the one hand, um, Paul hasn't chosen the clear, safe course, right? I mean, um, you know, taking on the emperor in the way that he's done is... Uh, is doesn't seem like a clear, safe course, right? You know, when certainly when Paul first suggested to Jessica, right? You know, when the two of them are outcast and alone and hunted, and you know, and they're they're in a still tent in the middle of the desert, and uh, and the, you know, the Harkonnens are hunting them, and and they are not sure they're going to be able to survive in the desert, and there's Paul like. Clearly, what we do now is attempt to take over the imperial throne, right? And it doesn't seem like this clear, safe course at that point, right? Um, but I think that it's um, it's sort of simpler here. I, I, I think that that is sort of an oversimplification of things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Kevin points out, of course, that there's a lot of room between those two extremes, between stagnation and the jihad, I agree. Uh, sorry, Tom, that was, that was Tom's point. Um, you know, stagnation is stillness and the jihad is a tsunami. You can have, you know, rivers, tides... Uh, regular waves, yeah, I agree. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Trevor, I agree that he's trying to avoid what he knew would be a very bloody event. He's trying to avoid the continuing stagnation, but more so, you know, uh, avoiding the, you know, the murdering of, 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 you know, tens of billions of people. Yeah, he is. He is, and that's, you know, that, you know, um, that kind of goes, Trevor, with what Tom was just saying about there being, you know, you can have someplace between those two extremes, um, the choice isn't only between stagnation and the jihad, and it does seem that Paul is kind of trying to do that, but I want to, um, I want to um, come back to this, this notion of the clear, of the choice of the clear, safe course, um, because I, this seems to me an important thing um, when thinking about, when thinking about Paul and Paul's choices. Um, more. The shorter of the pair said, You would blind yourself too and condemn us all to slow death. 
Have you any idea what it means to be deprived of the spice liquor once you're addicted? The eye that looks ahead to the safe course is closed forever, Paul said. The guild is crippled. Humans become little isolated clusters on their isolated planets. You know, I might do this thing out of pure spite or out of ennui. Um, that last sentence has always sounded to me like pure posturing on Paul's part. Um, I have a hard time, of all the things that Paul says, that's one of the things I have the hardest time believing. Um, uh, I mean, he seems to be sort of, that's bravura, right? We have a word for that. We've been given a word for Paul's attitude here, um, saying, I might destroy all the spies because I'm bored, right? Uh, and send all of the, I mean, again, the effect, humans become little isolated clusters on their isolated planets. You know, I'm going to just um, eliminate space travel, right? No more space travel, no more empire. No more, I mean, it's just just individual fiefdoms on their individual planets, no more interplanetary com uh, contact. It, because I'm bored, you know, what the heck. Again, I don't believe it, but it's a statement of bravura, right? Like the old Duke, exactly, Philip. Um, I... Yeah, yeah. Um, again, we're not going to get the isolation and the stagnation. We get the jihad instead. But the eye that looks ahead to the safe course is closed forever. What's Paul looking ahead to now? What's he looking ahead to? What's his plan? Prevent the jihad? Um, yeah, Nancy says, when you put it that way, it sounds like it might be a better way to go. Yeah, you want to prevent the jihad? I'll tell you how to prevent the death of tens of billions or tens or hundreds of billions of people. Um, eliminate space travel. Problem solved, right? No jihad. It's all fine, right? Um, you can't kill tens of billions of people if nobody has access to tens of billions of people, right? Um, but Nancy, he doesn't do it. He's not going to do it. Um, is his eye looking ahead to the safe path? Um, remember, remember what has happened. You know, what's sort of already going on. Um, we're told it's not been revealed quite yet. Paul's lost. Paul's lost. For all of the focus that the jihad gets, this gets kind of tossed out there, right? They're accustomed to seeing the future, Paul thought. In this place and time, they're blind, even as I am. And he sampled the time winds, sensing the turmoil, the storm nexus that now focused on this moment place. Even the faint gaps were closed now. Here was the unborn jihad he knew. Here was the race consciousness that he had once known as his own terrible purpose. Here was reason enough for a Kwisatz Haderach or a Lizan al-Gaib or even the halting schemes of the Bene Gesserit. The race of humans had felt its own dormancy, sensed itself grown stale, and knew now only the need to experience turmoil in which the genes would mingle and the strong new mixture survive. 
all humans were alive as an unconscious single or organism in this moment, experiencing a kind of sexual heat that could override any barrier. And Paul saw how futile were any efforts of his to change any smallest bit of this. He had thought to oppose the jihad within himself, but the jihad would be. His legions would rage out from Arrakis even without him. They needed only the legend he had already become. He had shown them the way, given them mastery, even over the guild, which must have the spice to exist. He lost. He's been defeated. The jihad is going to happen now. It can't not happen. No matter what he does, no matter what he says, whether he lives or dies, the jihad is now guaranteed. If his goal, you know, remember we asked a few times before, you know, back at the end of book one, and beginning of book two, like, what does winning look like, right? What does victory look like for Paul? Um, what we've been getting again and again is, is, uh, is preventing the jihad, right? That's, that's been like the real subplot. Um, you know, people think it's about reestablishing the Atreides dukedom. No, it's not really about that. Some might think, oh, it's really about seizing the imperial throne. No, no, it's not really about that. We have been made privy to what's really going on in the deeps of Paul's mind, and we know what he's really doing is trying to prevent the jihad, right? That's what this story has become for him. He loses. It's going to happen. And this is where we're told about this. And there's a sense of futility to this. He's known this. Um, he knew back at, in book one that he was going to be Muad'Dib, you know, the one who points the way. What has he just done? He's just shown the way, right? The guild was the final obstacle. They could destroy all the Sardaukar in battle. They could overcome the emperor. Um, you know, since they can beat the Sardaukar, they can beat the emperor. That's not that hard. Um, but they have to have the guild. What can they do if the guild, you know, they've been bri the Fremen have been bribing the guild, um, but if, uh, if they can't overcome the guild, if the guild just refuses, no victory is possible. No jihad can happen, but um, the, now he, Paul, has shown them the way, has pointed the way um, to how they can control the guild. He doesn't need to be around, right? It was never the Harkonnens. It was never the emperor. The guild was always the final obstacle. It's over. It's over now. Um, one um, way in which we sort of see this growing, um, you know, sort of the path towards the Atreides flag coming to mean many terrible things. Um, this is sort of a small moment, um, easy to kind of skip over, but it really jumped out to me this time. Um, this is right before they attack Arakeen at the end, and um, Gurney and Paul and Stilgar are talking about the way that the town people are proving remarkably effective um, as you know helpers to the Fremen as they move in to surround and um, and uh, prepare to attack um, the Harkonnens and the Emperor. Paul says, <clears throat> the Sardaukar have played into our hands. They grabbed some city women for their... No, this is not Paul speaking. Um, uh, 
Yeah, no, this is this is this is Paul speaking. Um, they grabbed some city women for their sport, decorated their battle standards with the heads of the men who objected, and they've built up a fever of hate among people who otherwise would have looked on the coming battle as no more than a great inconvenience and the possibility of exchanging one set of masters for another. The Sardaukar recruit for us, Stilgar. The city people do seem eager, Stilgar said. Their hate is fresh and clear, Paul said. That's why we use them as shock troops. The slaughter among them will be fear fearful, Gurney said, voice of Atreides past, pointing out but not saying explicitly, not sure your dad would have thought that way. Right, that's why we use them as shock troops. Shock troops, really? Stilgar nodded agreement. And I love that, by the way. Gurney saying the slaughter among them will be fearful. If he has a if he has a rebuke in mind there, it's gone completely over Stilgar's head. He's like, yeah, yeah, the slaughter among them is going to be fearful, isn't it? Um, they were told the odds, Paul said. They know every Sardaukar they kill will be one less for us. You see, gentlemen, they have something to die for. They've discovered they're a people. They're awakening. Um, Awakening, of course, is an interesting word in this book. Um, you know, we'll come back to that when we talk about Princess Irulan in a little bit. Um, but uh, the people here are awakening. The Fremen are awakening. The Jihad is awakening. And I think one of the things that we see here is a kind of an illustration, a kind of a case study of um, both sort of the bad and the good of the Jihad, right? We see how, we see how the Jihad is going to happen. We see how the oppressed are going to rise up and overthrow their oppressors um, and do horrible violence in response to the quite legitimate um, you know, injustices and atrocities that have been perpetrated upon them. Um, and we also see, notice the, uh, the, 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 the shake-up here. Notice the bonds that are being formed between the Fremen and the townspeople. The Fremen look down upon them, right? Um, and now Stilgar is speaking of them with a new respect. The relationship between the people of the city and, and the Fremen has changed, right? Um, again, we see a kind of a, a glimpse in sort of a small version of how that gene pool gets stirred up, not just by people traveling around, but by, you know, uh, breaking old systems of thought, old boundaries between people groups, right? I, again, I, this 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 moment seems to me like a little like a kind of microcosm of that, um, of how the jihad is going to work, um, both destructive and constructive. But again, the the because again, remember, it's been a constructive goal all along. The you know the enrichment of the gene pool um, has been has been the thing. Um, but um, but right, exactly. Carolyn says the shock troops equals cannon fodder, and the cycle of violence will continue when the atrocities build up. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, Paul's whole thing was the cost was too high. Right, he wasn't willing to be the instrument of the jihad to be responsible for the deaths of all those people. Um, but again, here we sort of see, in a sense, how it could how it can work. Let's. Um, I want to come back to some sort of uh, some final conclusions about Paul and the jihad. Again, he's, he's failed. The jihad is going to happen now, as we know. Um, where does this leave us at the end? Where are we? What's our final assessment, our final analysis of Paul? Um, I want to come back to that. But let's pause there and touch on some things I want to make sure we touch on before we go, because we can't, I 
I can't not talk about them. Um, the first of these is Count Fenrir. Um, uh, I want to make sure I don't uh, I don't slant that. First, the enigmatic uh, quotation from Count Fenrir, a profile concerning which, of course, we learn nothing further. No woman, no man, no child ever was deeply intimate with my father. The closest anyone ever came to casual camaraderie with the Padishah Emperor was the relationship offered by Count Hazimir Fenring, a companion from childhood. The measure of Count Fenring's friendship may be seen first in a positive thing. He allayed the Landsrod suspicions after the Arrakis affair. It cost more than a billion salaries in, space, in spice bribes, so my mother said, and there were other gifts as well, slave women, royal honors, and tokens of rank. The second major evidence of the Count's friendship was negative. He refused to kill a man, even though it was within his capabilities, and my father commanded it. I will relate this presently. Um, this is, uh, you know, Gerald asks, does Princess Irulan write after the jihad is over? Um, well, at least after it's well underway, it seems. Um, uh, this um, is one of the most tantalizing of, you know, these uh, quotations from Princess Irulan of the whole thing. First of all, notice also it's one of the only ones that point ahead towards something that we that we legitimately don't know what it's referring to. That is, there have been times when the passages refer to something that hasn't happened yet, like the death of Duke Leto, right? We looked at a bunch of those, um, where, uh, where Duke Leto's death is being explicitly anticipated. Um, but, um, I, but we see here a reference forward to something which perhaps we can guess, but which we don't know for sure even what it's talking about. And this is almost the element of surprise that, we're, that we're, we've been saying doesn't really seem to exist in this book. Um, but not quite certainly. It is extremely tantalizing, and it raises the important question. I think, you know, we, we based on this, if we're paying attention to this, I think we have to bring from it to the ending of the book the question, how is this an evidence of friend? In what way? What you know? Who? Not only whom did Count Fenrir refuse to kill? We might have our suspicions on that point. But how is that an evidence of the Count's friendship? Why is letting Paul live an act of friendship to the pad? Personal friendship is the context we get at the beginning. In what sense is he doing the Padishah Emperor a favor by not killing Paul? Um, so let's look at when it actually happens. Here is Paul's recognition of uh, sorry, yeah. Paul's recognition of um, Fenring. He looked beyond Phaedratha then, attracted by a movement, seeing there a narrow, weaselish face he'd never before encountered, not in time or out of it. It was a face he felt he should know, and the feeling carried with it a marker of fear. Why should I fear that man? He wondered. He leaned toward his mother, whispered, that man to the left of the Reverend Mother, the evil-looking one, who is that? Jessica looked, recognizing the face from her Duke's dossiers. Count Fenwick, she said, the one who is here immediately before us, a genetic eunuch and a killer. The Emperor's errand boy, Paul thought, and, he, and the thought was a shock, crashing across, across his consciousness because he had seen the Emperor in uncounted associations spread through the possible futures, but never once had Count Fenring appeared 
within those Prussian visions. It occurred to Paul then that he had seen his own dead body along countless reaches of the time web, but never once had he seen his moment of death. Have I been denied a glimpse of this man because he is the one who kills me? Paul wondered. Um... Uh, Kevin Morgan is making his final appeal of the term for me to read the sequels, uh, saying that this passage is enormously important uh, for uh, uh, for the sequels that come after. Um, okay, Kevin. <laughs> I'll read them. I, I will. I will go back and read them, I promise. Um, I'll give them another try. It's been several years since I've given them a try. I should. Um, totally reaching that time in my life when I... I've read something in what seems to me recently, but when I think it through, I'm like, gosh, that was like 15, 20 years ago, wasn't it? Um, so I'll give them another shot. Um, uh, anyhow, okay. What do we see here? What do we learn? Um, well, some things about Count Fenring. I want to hold those until we look at the next passage. Um, this stuff about him being an almost Kwisatz Haderach, I think, that's so where we sort of are invited to put these things together a little bit. But I want to pause for a second to notice one thing about Paul here. Um, Paul's fear. Paul's fear. Um, Paul recognizes that he's afraid. He's afraid of Count Fenrir. Why should I fear that man? He wondered. And at the end of this passage, the question he asks at the end seems to supply the answer. Why should I fear that man? Because he is the man who might kill you. The man who could kill you. Now, this might seem stupid to say, for me to be making a big deal about the fact like, okay, so Paul's afraid of him because he might kill him. Isn't that perfectly natural to fear somebody? Uh, you know, when you meet somebody and you're like, oh my gosh, this might be the person who kills me. Um, this person has the power to kill me. Um, that might, yeah, again, that seems pretty natural. But Gerald, Michael, I'm thinking exactly along the same lines you are. Gerald says, Paul fears death more than he wants to avoid the jihad. Yeah, again, what does winning look like, Paul? Saving your life? Remember, back to the cave, you know, what I think of as James's cave, right? Um, that's the moment where Paul is thinking about his mom, my mother is my enemy, right? What looks like winning to her, what she is trying to do is to preserve Paul's life and to solidify their standing among the Fremen in order first to keep Paul alive and second to help Paul be able to recover his dukedom, right? This is uh, her goal. This is her plan. This is what she's trying to do. From where Paul is sitting, she is missing the point, right? Not only is what she's trying to do not the greatest and most important thing, not only is her view really limited in scope, it's also incorrect, right? Um, in doing the things that she's doing, she's bringing about the real evil, the jihad, the evil which transcends the comparatively tiny evil of their own destruction, right? Um, Paul talks as if um, 
Paul talks as if what really matters is the jihad. But he acts as if he is just as committed to self-preservation as Jessica seemed to be committed to his own preservation. Um, Gerald, that is exactly the question that um, uh, that was raised for me in this passage. But let's keep thinking about Fenrir and, and uh, let's include the, the moment in which the Count, Fen Count Fenrir shows his friendship. Slowly Fenring moved his head, a prolonged turning until he faced Paul. Do it, the Emperor hissed. The, Paul, the Count focused on Paul, seeing with his eyes his lady Mar seeing with eyes his lady Margot had trans trained in the Bene Gesserit way, nice if I could read, aware of the mystery and hidden grandeur about this Atreides youth. I could kill him, Fenring thought, and he knew this for the truth. Something in his own secretive depths stayed the Count then, and he glimpsed briefly, inadequately, the advantage he held over Paul, a way of hiding from the youth, a furtiveness of person and motives that no eye could penetrate. Paul, aware of some of this from the way the time nexus boiled, understood at last why he had never seen Fenring along the webs of prescience. Fenring was one of the might-have-beens, an almost Cuisance Haderach, crippled by a flaw in the genetic pattern, a eunuch, his talent concentrated into furtiveness and inner seclusion. A deep compassion for the Count flowed through Paul, the first sense of brotherhood he'd ever experienced. Fenring, reading Paul's emotion, said, Majesty, I must refuse. Okay. Um... He's aware of the mystery and hidden grandeur. Notice what we learn about Fenring here, right? Um, this is one of the first times we really get sort of into Fenring's head, right? Um, we got some of him before. I'm not saying we've never been anywhere near his point of view, um, but this is the. But even then, like when we were seeing. Um, you know, some slightly behind-the-stage stuff with Count Fenring and what Count Fenring was thinking about his conversation with Baron Harkonnen. Even there, it was still masked. It was still we were still having to do interpretation of it. Right? He's still humming, and we don't understand the humming. But um, now we're getting much more. Right? Um, right? Gerald says, "Of course, we never see Count Fenring. We never see Count Fenring's perspective. Uh, he's secretive. He's invisible." Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but look at what we learn about him. He is aware of the mystery and hidden grandeur about this Atreides youth. This insight that he has. Um, he's not prescient exactly, but he seems to understand. He certainly understands more than the Emperor, right? The Emperor sees only a threat to himself. He doesn't even see that for a while. Um, but uh, uh, but he doesn't understand, he underrates Paul um, even up to the end, it seems. Um, Count Fenring doesn't, but it's not just a matter of him being a better assessor of people than the Emperor. Um, his 
insight, his perception here seems to be more than just, you know, physical, more than just perception, um, or rather a different kind of perception, more like the kind of awareness that Paul has. Um, notice also, um, I could kill him, Fenring thought, and he knew this for a truth. You catch that? See the significance of that statement? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, Kevin, it, it, truth sense. He seems to have truth sense. Good. Neil, exactly. He see he and, and Neil, I, I agree with you as you emphasize, he can tell the truth he can he can sense truth like Paul could. Like Paul could, Neil, I agree. Remember, Paul could perceive the truth differently um, from uh, from the Reverend Mother. Right? The Reverend Mother, she you know, it's it's a big deal, right? I mean we see how Baron Harkonnen is like she is central to all of his plots because you've got to be able to stand in front of the uh, you know, uh, in front of the Reverend Mother and um, pass her lie detector test, right? But again, what we learned way at the beginning was that her truth sense was merely a perception when people believed what they said. Um, and this is, Paul's percep perception was more than that, right? He could sense that she believed what she said, but could recognize that it wasn't true, it wasn't real. This is not about belief, right? Um, he knows for a truth that the statement, I could kill him, is true. right? He knows that for a fact. Um, so we see him, you know, just these little hints that we get that he has some powers that are kind of like Paul's in some ways. Um, okay. Um, he's an almost Kwisatz Haderach, and he's a genetic eunuch. Um, Alyssa, House Thomas was pointing out, and Alyssa, you have this marvelous way of pointing out things which I haven't really thought about. But as soon as you point them out, they're like completely obvious, and you wonder how you can never, how you know you didn't see that right away. It's a wonderful thing. Um, Alyssa, of course, was pointing out the significance of Fenring as a Kwisatz, as an almost Kwisatz Haderach, and also as a genetic eunuch that is thinking about the male-female thing that we get in the, you know, in the truth drug, and the truth trance, um, that the Bene Gesserits, the Kwisatz Haderach do. Um, there's a sense of brotherhood between him and Paul, uh, but he's also, in this other sense, almost like the inverse of Paul, right? The Kwisatz Haderach is the one who can embrace the masculine and the feminine simultaneously, right? The one who can be in many places at once. Count Fenring is he who can be in no places at all, <laughs> right? He's the opposite of that. He's a eunuch. He's neither male nor female. Um, uh, he's he's the almost Kwisatz Haderach. In a sense, he's almost the anti-Kwisatz Haderach, right? And yet, there's not enmity but brotherhood. Instead of being instead of him and Paul being like matter and antimatter, there's this likeness there. There's even this sort of appreciation for each other, this recognition. The two of them are both tools, right? They're both instruments. The fact that he's a genetic eunuch, he's not been made a eunuch, right? He's not just somebody who has been castrated physically at some point earlier in his life. He's a genetic eunuch. Um, he's born a freak, to use Paul's word and Aaliyah's word, right? Paul, Aaliyah, and Count Fenring, all three of them freaks. Born that way. 
not by their own choice, um, though their own choices impact what they become and how they do what they do. And here we see Count Fenring making his most important choice, right? Um, and what is the result of his choice? Um, how is this action an act of friendship to the emperor? How is he proving his friendship? Well, I think we can answer this on a couple different levels. Um, one that a couple people um, were already um, were already saying um, that um, he certainly seems to save the life of the emperor by doing this in the simplest sense. Because I mean, you only have to ask, what would have happened? had Paul been killed. If Count Fenring says, hmm, Majesty, okay, Majesty, uh, I'm on it, right? And he turns and offs Paul. What happens? What happens next, do you think, right? Um, what happens next is clearly, well, we know long-term what happens next, right? Paul's already seen that. What happens next is the jihad, right? Starting here and now, presumably. Um, if the emperor by treachery kills Paul, what you know? Where do you put the odds that um, the Fremen and even Gurney Halleck don't slaughter everybody? Right? I, I mean, I put it myself at about zero. Right? So, um, so clearly, on the one hand, he's 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 in the immediate term physically preserving the emperor's life because he would certainly be killed. There's almost the sense in which the emperor does not even now understand, uh, you know, when he feels like he's, all of his weapons have been fired, right, all of his rounds have been shot off, the only one he's got left, um, the only concealed weapon he still has is Count Fenring, um, is treachery, um, as he characterized him before, but um, he doesn't even realize that he can't use that, he can't even use that one effectively, he's lost, lost more profoundly than he's willing to recognize. Um, but Fenring recognizes it and acts to preserve him um, and to bring something out of it. Um, but I agree, you know, with uh, Trevor and Tom and a couple other people who are, you know, saying that um, Count Fenring does seem to understand that the jihad is coming, whether or not Paul is alive, um, and that you know perhaps Paul can control the jihad to some extent, that it really is the best outcome. Um, he's doing not only what is best to preserve the emperor, he's doing what is best for the, you know, the empire, right? Um, this is how the empire can best be protected. I mean, who knows? Um, remember the, um, remember the, remember Paul saying to the guild, he might do this thing, you know, out of ennui, right? Um, uh, you might do it out of spite. Maybe the Fremen would do it out of spite. Um, you know, maybe, maybe the Fremen would choose to get their revenge in that way. Who knows? But, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Carolyn asks, you know, is this another layer of, do we get another layer of brotherhood with Paul in that Fenring was taught the Bene Gesserit way by his lady as Paul was taught by his mother? Yeah, I think there's a big difference there, though, Carolyn, um, the difference between wife and mother. That is, Paul was raised to it by his mother. He can say, 
to a greater extent than Count Fenring can, seems to be able to say, you did this to me. Remember when Paul talks that way at the end of book one, um, you know, that she didn't realize what she was doing to him by, um, um, by training him, you know, and awakening this, you know, stirring this within him. Um, Count Fenring is learning the skills from his wife, right? He's not a child. He's not um, the subject of the teacher in the way that you know, there's not that parent-child relationship. Um, Count Fenring is more obviously in collusion with the Bene Gesserit rather than being um, sort of brought up, at least potentially, to be the instrument of them. So I see a significant difference between them, Carolyn, but certainly um, their relationship with the Bene Gesserit, you know, and the fact that they both have Bene Gesserit training um, is, certainly, is certainly a connection. Um, yeah, good. Sharon Powell says, Paul is the only one who by his word has guaranteed the, em the emperor's safety, and the emperor doesn't get that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, interesting. Kevin Morgan says, they're both men, uh, Paul and, and Fenring, um, that are ultimately aware they serve a higher power. That would probably be enough, but with all the other similarities of choice, it's like they're brothers to an extent. Um, yeah, 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 agreed. Um, Somebody brought up, and I, I missed it, it was a little while back, um, in talking about Fenring's choice. Um, you know, how many people in this book actually have choice? When we were looking at Paul's failure a little while ago, the recognition that he seems to come to in the end is the jihad wasn't preventable, actually. Um, I failed, but the thing I failed to do wasn't possible. Um, yeah, yeah, Kevin, it was you who asked that question. Does he have one of the only actual choices in the book? Um, uh, Kevin says, I can't, I can't recall any moments in which a person actually chooses rather than um, permitting a choice to pass by. I have to think about that one more, but, um, but certainly it's a significant moment, and I will certainly say it does not seem to, you know, Paul doesn't seem ever to make that kind, that sort of concrete of a choice. Um, I mean, he chooses to fight Janus, for instance. Um, I can't think, we, I don't think we, it's fair to say that Paul never makes a choice. Um, but uh, we, it's true that we don't see anything quite this dramatic. Paul might call himself, you know, at the center, he might call himself the fulcrum, but we don't really see that moment where Paul chooses, right? Where Paul says, okay, the future of the thing is in my hands. Which direction am I going to go? I'm going to choose to go this direction. We don't really see that. Um, yeah, Kevin Morgan says, the man who can see the future is defined by what he doesn't see, um, or at least in preserved in, in this perhaps more than one sense by what he doesn't see and who he doesn't see. Okay, two things I'm going to try to tie up in our um, last uh, stretch of time here. Um, and the first is Thufar Hawat. I want to come back to Thufar. I've been saying we'll come back to Thufar, and I want to do it. Um, Thufar, old friend, Paul said, as you can see, my back is toward no door. The universe is full of doors, Hawat said. Am I my father's son? Paul asked. 
more like your grandfather's, how I grasped. You've his, you've his manner and the look of him in your eyes. Um, I gotta think how ticked off Jessica must have been when he said that. Anyway. Yet I'm my father's son, Paul said, for I say to you, Thufer, that in payment for your years of service to my family, you may now ask anything you wish of me, anything at all. Do you need my life now, Thufer? It is yours. Paul stepped forward a pace, hands at his side, seeing the look of awareness grow in Howitt's eyes. He realizes that I know of the treachery, Paul thought. Pitching his voice to carry in a half-whisper for Howitt's ears alone, Paul said, I mean this, Thufer. If you are to strike me, do it now. I but wanted to stand before you once more, my duke, says Thufer. Um, <laughs> Nancy says, oh, Jessica knows. Uh, yeah, yeah, I suspect you're right, Nancy. Um, uh, my first question here. I want to talk about Thufer and where the Thufer plotline has led us. But hang on a second. What did we learn about Paul in this scene? We get the allusions at the beginning to that first scene, right? And that first scene back on Caledon, the Atreides family home, the Atreides plans for Arrakis, right? All of those things are recalled um, in uh, that the reference to him sitting with his, you know, his him not sitting with his back towards the door. Right, and how it telling him the universe is full of doors. Right, um, we come back to the matador and the bull. Right, the reminder of the of the bravura grandfather um, that Paul is being like him. We are invited, I think, to remember the matador and the bull specifically. Um, Sharon Powell suggests Paul is facing the bull head on. Um, I think, possibly, or at least he thinks he is, right? That seems to be what he says. You know, my back is towards no door, just as his, unlike how his grandfather's back was to a bull. That's, of course, the problem with sitting with your back to a door. You can never know um, when there's going to be a bull charging through. Um, this invites us to go back to that very first scene, right? Paul sitting with his back to a door when he knew that he wasn't supposed to sit with his back through a door with his back to a door. Um, we saw from the beginning Paul was like the old Duke, right? That was that was totally that was totally an old Duke move, right? Um, to sit with his back to the door on purpose. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, Patrick, I agree, there's bravura in what Paul is doing here. If you need to kill me. If you're going to betray me, go ahead. I'm not going to stop you. Right? He is taking a gamble. He's taking a risk. Um, but what do you think of his self, the self-sacrifice element there? Right? He's saying this is, shows that he's his father's son because he's willing to give his very life for Thufir to reward Thufir's loyalty to the Atreides. Um, what do you think? Is this a very Atreides move? Is he being like Leto here? Um, I'm never uh, 
Um, I'm never quite sure. I'm willing to believe that Paul is sincere here. Like, I'm not suggesting that I think that Paul is lying, that if Thufir tries to kill him, he's actually going to stop him. Um, uh, yeah, Kevin reads it as pure, open-hearted bravura. Yeah, insane. even in the way in which he's trying to show that he's his father's son, he's acting more like his grandfather than he's acting like his father. Um, even to the extent of when the old duke's back was to the bull, what was he facing? Why was his back to the bull? His back was to the bull because his face is to the crowd, right? Um, he says this for Hawat's ears alone, the second part. Um, but he said to the crowd, for the benefit of the people around, do you need my life now, Thufur? It's yours. This too seems like a performance similar to the old Duke's. Again, why was the old Duke in the matter in a, in a bull ring to begin with, right? Why was he doing that? He was establishing something, right? He was proving something, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Philip, good. Philip Menzies points out that this is uh, um, also kind of like Jessica offering herself up to Thufer, uh, you know, to uh, permitting Thufer to kill her, right? Um, facing him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Nancy points out it's like Fade Routh's performance, too. Yes, Fade Routh's performance in the arena. We should be remembering the Matador, right? We should be remembering the old Duke. And that establishes another link between Fade Routh and Paul, who have always been parallels with each other throughout this story. Um, yeah, Rachel Draper thinks he's trying too hard to be his father's son, or what he thinks it is to be that. Um, it's a wonderful wording there, Rachel. It does seem that he's kind of lost sight of what it means to be an Atreides, right? Um, and we've seen Gurney has reminded us, has pointed out to us several examples of that. Um, but at the same time, Josh Evans says, uh, this is a rare human and, and intimate moment, and it seems very possible that Paul meant what he said. I don't think I disagree with that, Josh, actually. I think he does mean it. I think he does love Thufer. I think that he there is real humanity here. It's not just a game. It's not just a gesture. It's not just a performance. But it is a performance. <laughs> um, and uh, and it is happening in a bowl ring here. Um, uh, yeah, Sharon thinks he's rebelling against control um, by reveling in making his own choices. Um, uh, possibly. Possibly. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, Kevin Morgan points out it is open-hearted, but it's still bravura, he believes. Um, but back to Thufur for a second. So what was Thufur's plan? He's the instrument, he's the tool of the emperor here. How did it come to this, Thufur? Remember we've gotten in book two and three, especially in book three, a, uh, a sort of a restoration of Thufur Hawat, right? We've gotten the, the rehabilitation of Thufur Hawat as a mentat, 
right? We've seen him operating at a really high level, or at least been given implications of things for operating at a really high level where we didn't really see him operating with the Atreides back in book one. Um, uh, yeah, Neil, as Neil reminds us, the last we heard Thufir had disappeared from the Harkonnens. What was he doing? So there are, there are a couple different... Um, uh, there's, there are a couple different layers here, right? Um, remember the way in which it was implied, or at least in which we were invited to suspect that Thufir Hawat was manipulating everybody, the Baron knows he's playing his own game, right? Um, the Baron believes that the game that Thufir is playing is to destroy the Emperor, right? Um, uh, Thufir seems to be meaning to bring about the destruction of both the Harkonnens and uh, the Emperor. Um, so... It's possible to see this whole situation as, in a sense, the result of Thufir Hawat's manipulations. Um, remember that the reason this is happening, the reason the Emperor is here, is the way are the things that the Baron said, the stuff about you know making Iraq as into a prison planet and all that stuff. Um, and the reactions, the consequences, the um, the the thing that the, that um, how it has been sort of manipulating the Baron into doing in response to that. Um, it's not easy to imagine that. Um, sorry, it's not hard to imagine um, that uh, this is kind of the thing he had in mind. Right? That is, he wanted to bring the Emperor to cohesion. Notice what's happened, right? Um, the Emperor has really exposed himself. Uh, he was in secret assisting the Harkonnens before. Now he's taking, uh, you know, he's, he's coming to Arrakis himself to take personal charge with his Sardaukar, um, you know, with a Baron there at his side, um, and all of the other houses hovering over and watching, right? The Emperor wants to pass it, you know, says, either tries to pass it off like, oh, you know, this is all a waste of my time, right? I, you know, let's just settle this so I can leave. But it seems that, you know, since he was trying to hush up everything, um, uh, it's, um, it's, it's, he's been exposed. To, at least he's been made vulnerable uh, to exposure. Um, and, of course, you've got the way that, you know, exactly, Neil, as you say, the Emperor thought that the Baron was working with Duke Atreides, right? So he thinks that, um, you know, that he, the Emperor, has now become convinced that Duke Leto and Baron Harkonnen were in, were, you know, were in cahoots together and manipulating the Emperor himself, right? It's, it's, again, it's possible to see. These are all seeds that Thufir Hawat has planted, right? So he has now set the Baron and the Emperor against each other, and it's going to lead to the destruction of one or ideally both of them, and the whole thing exposed. Um, uh, you know, this, that, that seems to be, um, as Carolyn was pointing out, Hawat's endgame, right? As uh, Carolyn Morehouse says, um, uh, was Hawat's endgame to create a crucible to burn away the impurities it seems it's like a, you know, more just to create a bonfire in which to burn his enemies, right? Both of them, all of them. 
um, let's destroy the Emperor's reputation at least. Let's destroy Baron Harkonnen literally and House Harkonnen and, uh, and the Emperor's standing um, and his power. Um, it's possible to construct all that out of what we hear about Howat before. Um, but I can't help but find his end a little disappointing. His words to Paul are beautiful. His forgiveness of Jessica is touching. Um, his recognition in the end of his own failures is really tragic. Um, you know, the way in which he feels, um, you know, again, like his own, his own mis the last thing that he recognizes is his own mistake, right? That, uh, the final miscalculation, he, he miscalculated a bunch of things in the downfall of the Atreides, and now he realizes about that. Neil thinks he must know about the poison by now. Um, I, I agree, I suspect so. Um, but, uh, but I still find his end kind of disappointing. What was he doing? Why, where was he gone? Why was, you know, what was he up to? We don't know, we don't see what comes from that. Um, uh, Neil thinks that he definitely was meeting with Gurney or Gurney's men, um, you know, in the times when he was off the, the, the map of the Harkonnens um, for those several days. And the, you know, the Emperor's like, where is Thuver Hawat? But nothing comes of it. I mean, if so, then what? I, I, you know, I mean, it's not clear. And what does he accomplish? Like, he sets himself up to be a double agent for Paul, right? You know, he 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 goes. You know, he's willing to act as a uh, an assassin, to pretend he's acting. You know, to sham like he's going to act as an assassin and kill Paul. When then he reveals that uh, um, that it's. Um, uh, that that he'd never intended to kill Paul, um, and was a double agent all the time. But okay, how did what did he accomplish by that? What did he accomplish by now finally revealing that his loyalty had been with the Atreides all along? Everybody kind of suspected that already, anyhow. Um, and he doesn't do anything. He just kicks over dead, right? And um, um, it's not even obvious how much he understands. As uh, you know, Neil says, at least he found out the truth about Jessica. Well, yeah, but it's not like he, it's not like he set out um, to, uh, uh, to, to find that out. You know I mean? It, he, he, and we don't know how he found that out. Again, like, like it just seems like so much has happened and we don't know. And it's not just that it's something that happens off stage that we're not told about. I've always felt that it, it didn't seem wrapped up enough. Like, oh, I don't feel like we're even given enough evidence to guess at what he's been doing. Um, uh, you know, John, sa John Saunders says maybe he's warning the other great houses that the Emperor will take out the Harkonnens. Um, you know, yeah, and if they don't want to be picked off one by one, they have to unite. You know, so maybe he's fomenting discord among the other great houses, maybe. But again, we don't know. We don't have any idea. Um, um, and yet Patrick says he accomplished proving his loyalty to Paul and died a loyal servant to the Atreides once more. I, I agree, and, and that I like. I mean, I do, for that reason, I find his death scene and his, this exchange with Paul quite beautiful and very moving. But I find the Thufir Hawat plot as a whole to be disappointing in its resolution. Um, I wanted 
I wanted to see at least some um, tantalizing bits that I could think through and put together myself to sort of see what he had been doing and how ideally I would love to have seen him wish um, to see him turn out in fact to have been clever and calculating more carefully than everybody else but we don't get that and hey, maybe it's just me but I wish we had that um, uh, one possible way of looking, one charitable way of looking at the lack of resolution of his story, I think, would be sort of to see, like, what happens here? Paul and the Fremen suddenly coming in, blowing down the shield wall and riding sandworms into Arakeen. Kind of throws a wrench into lots of plans. I mean, this is not exactly as anyone had planned it or foreseen it. So there's a sense in which Thufir Hawat's strategy is like this grand epic strategy. It's like the the Dune strategy to, to top all Dune strategies, right? You know, all of the, the plans within plans and schemes within schemes, all of this plotting and intrigue and multiple levels of meaning and innuendo that we get so often throughout the book. And Thufir Hawat is the master of it, and he is, uh, uh, and we see him building this master plan, and then it just kind of fizzles in the end, because, you know, in the midst of all these policies comes... Mwadib, uh, and, it, it, you know, his friend and fanatics, and everything else is just uh, tossed out the window. Yes, Tom, the sandworms are coming, the sandworms are coming. Um, exactly. You know, that it's no longer business as usual. Um, that, uh, you know, if, uh, if this were just going to be, you know, the story of, you know, the Doom World, the story of this, uh, um, you know, this this political culture that we've seen continuing in this new direction, you know, maybe we would have seen that, but instead we get something different. You know, now there's something completely different. Um, well, I do want to talk about Irulan before we go. Here's the moment Prince Irulan becomes a professional author. Paul to Cheney, we must obey the forms, yet that princess shall have no more of me than my name, no child of mine, nor touch, nor softness of glance, nor instant of desire. So you say now, Cheney said. She glanced across the room at the tall princess. Do you know so little of my son, Jessica whispered. See that princess standing there, so haughty and confident. They say she has pretensions of a literary nature. Let us hope she finds solace in such things. She'll have little else. A bitter laugh escaped Jessica. Think on it, Cheney. That princess will have the name, yet she'll live as less than a concubine, never to know a moment of tenderness from the man to whom she's bound. While we, Cheney, we who carry the name of concubine, history will call us wives. Um, and Nancy's kind of ticked off. Nancy Fosberg says, I was kind of upset with Paul for intentionally ruining Irulan's life. What did she ever do to him? Uh, I hear you. I hear you, man. It seems a little harsh on poor Princess uh, Irulan. Neil says it seems a bit cruel. Um, on the one hand, I, I, you know, she seems also to be in a different sense from the Reverend Mother. Um, a stand-in for the Bene Gesserits as a whole. Exactly, Philip Lord is thinking the same thing. Um, Bene Gesserit politics. Exactly. Um, if the Reverend Mother is sort of, in this final scene, the stand-in for the Bene Gesserit past, you know, sort of the Bene Gesserit long view, 
and the anticipation of the Puisance Haderach, Princess Irulan is a stand-in for the contemporary political manipulation of the system. Right? Um, the Bene Gesserit, who is the daughter of the emperor and who is to be the next empress. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, it seems that that's sort of enough for Paul to uh, condemn her. But I want to come back to the ending. I want to come back to that last paragraph. Um, a question I'm going to ask in a little bit is, why is this the last paragraph of the book? What is the effect of ending here? Um, but, uh, but, okay, we see Paul declaring his distance from her. Um, think of all those passages where she's, you know, in, the, in her works that we've been reading, where she speaks from you know, as from familiar knowledge. Remember when we were talking about it after book one, and those of you who hadn't read the book before were saying things like, you would get the impression that she was like in his family, right? That she knows him well, personally, that she's speaking from this much deeper intimacy with Muad'Dib than most people have. Um, she's got the inside scoop, right? And yet we see in this passage Paul distancing himself from her. She will never know me. She will never be a part of my life. Um, and that's interesting, right? Um, it almost invites me to want to look at all of those passages now in a very different way. Um, Jessica suggests that her literary pretensions might possibly be her only consolation, right? Let her console herself. Let us hope she finds solace in her literary pretensions. She will have little else than, um, you know, her, uh, her, um, her, her books, right? Her writing. Um, <clears throat> in what sense? If Jessica's right, I see no reason to believe that she's wrong, um, if Jessica's right and these writings are the Princess Irland's only solace, um, how are they, how do they solace her? Is it possible to read her works as her revenge against him? Um, that she sets herself up to be his recorder. She's going to be the one who tells his story. She's going to be the mediator of Paul to everyone else. She is going to craft this character called Muad'Dib and depict him so that the Muad'Dib that most people learn about is going to be not him personally, but her creation. Um, is she a propagandist? Or is she a satirist? Um, I'm not asking these questions, um, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying these purely rhetorically. I still do think there's a question. I'm not saying I think it's, it's, it's definite or obvious um, that she's being satirical, that she's uh, taking vengeance upon him by establishing herself as his mouthpiece um, to posterity. But it certainly seems like a possibility, right? And I think the, what we get at the ending here really sort of opens that up. Um, and notice also the irony of that last statement. We who carry the name of the concubine, history will call us wives. And Princess Irwana is going to write the history that calls them wives. Ouch, ouch. 
Um, good. Nancy was just noticing that exact same thing. Um, you know, that uh, history equals Irulan here. <laughs> yeah, Kevin says, that's cold, girl. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Trevor is wondering, what will history call Paul? Well, again, Princess Irulan seems to be the one who has the most, uh, uh, the most impact on that. Um, uh, here's our final tally of the Princess Irulan oeuvre. I know some of you were looking forward to this. Okay, so here we have the book-by-book -book breakdown of the titles and the total number of times each one has appeared. And I think when you look at this, some pretty clear patterns emerge, right? There are a bunch of things which only come up once, um, even things which might be twice if you think Muad'Dib conversations and conversations with Muad'Dib might perhaps be the same uh, work. But anyway, um, there, the, the, you know, we get a whole bunch of things which are referred to only once or maybe twice. Um, but then we get several works. You know, it's pretty easy to see which ones rise to the top. It's pretty easy to see which ones are the best sellers on this list, right? Um, and uh, uh, the collected sayings of Muad'Dib wins, right? Eight quotes from the collected sayings of Muad'Dib. Um, the Manual of Muad'Dib and Arrakis Awakening coming from behind with a dark horse candidate, right? The the um, you know, with uh, with four quotations in book three, Arrakis Awakening leaps forward and ties the Manual of Muad'Dib for second place. Notice the symmetry there. Four quotations from the Manual of Muad'Dib in book one and two in book two, two and four respectively for two and three uh, in Arrakis Awakening. Um, I'm not trying to claim that that's, you know, that he probably planned it and plotted it out exactly like that, but I think it's interesting. I think that we can start to see some shape here, right, of the way in which her quotations are being deployed. What we see, we talked about, for instance, that sudden popping out of the three quotations from In My Father's House there in book two, as our own attention as readers is being drawn more and more to the emperor as a character and as a person and what's going on with him. Um, we're being reminded more and more forcefully of his presence, not just as a sort of a background force. Um, uh, yeah, but... Um, but anyway, these three, um, uh, those, those. Th and that, but even if you look back to, if you look down to sort of the next level, right? With several, the, the the three works with four quotations, family commentaries, a child's history of one deep. Both of them almost exclusively in book one, right? They come up um, three and four times respectively. Neither of them ever quoted from in book three, and uh, only once from the child's history in book two. And then in my father's house, as I already mentioned, which springs into prominence in the middle of book two. Um, so what's the picture? What do we um, um, what do we what do we get from that? What kind of what kinds of conclusions do you think we can draw here? Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that we get, especially looking at some of the other book three texts. Um, the collected legends of Arrakis. Um, in particular to me, Muad'Dib, the religious issues. Count Fenring, a profile. Um, remember I was asking before, in, in book one, analysis, the Arakeen crisis. Um, I was saying how that, both in its title and in the tone that it adopts when we get the quotation from it, suggests that this is a um, this is an in-house document. This is not a public 
this is not a publication, it's not a public work. Um, that, that sounds more like a report written for the Bene Gesserits, right? Um, that kind of insider view, um, which clearly does not buy into the hype, right? Which clearly does not um, earnestly revere Muad'Dib as if he were some kind of deity, or at least as some kind of prophet, um, those come out more in Book 3. Um, Muad'Dib, the religious issues, we looked at, the, at that quotation um, before. Um, Muad'Dib the man, even, is an interesting one. That one's in Book 2. Um, uh, Muad'Dib, the 99 wonders of the universe. One, I, I can't but wonder again if that's maybe a little bit satirical in its tone. Um, yeah, Kevin thinks that's a crap tourist book if I've ever heard of one. Uh, yeah, but it's it's a fascinating combination of title and subtitle, right? If it were like one deep, one of the ninety nine wonders of the universe, you know, it would sound pretty trite. Um, uh, if it were like the 99 Wonders of the Universe, according to Muad'Dib, it would sound like it were in the category of the wisdom of Muad'Dib, right? It would be like travel advice from Muad'Dib, right? That would be a little bit banal, but, you know, again, sort of in the, like, he is the oracle of all wisdom kind of line. Um, but just the, the colon, that Muad'Dib, the 99, is he all 99 of them, right? Is that, uh, or what? Um, uh yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah. So anyhow, it's um, I, I'm not really quite sure how to read that one. But again, it, it, they, they read to me as different from certainly most of what we were getting there in book one. Um, things like uh, a child's history of Muad'Dib, right? Which sounds more pure propaganda. Remember, that was what many of you were saying. The first, the, the book one title sounded like they sounded primarily like propaganda. And they, the dictionary of Muad'Dib. Songs of Muad'Dib, the child's history, family commentaries. Um, other than analysis, the Arakeen crisis, it all sounds like maybe the humanity of Muad'Dib, but it all sounds like um, pretty reverential stuff, much less so the book three things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, final thoughts on the end of the book. Um, Going back for a second to uh, the last paragraph, why do we end here? We end with Cheney and Jessica together, right? An emphasis on the women, uh, on Paul's family, right? His mom and his concubine, right? His mom and his true wife. Um, we're getting a glimpse of their, what to some extent their sacrifice, their heroism. Remember Jessica and what she sacrificed for love and what she did for love of Leto has been a theme, right? You know, that's been an issue throughout the book. We now see Cheney being invited, you know, to this sort of fellow feeling between Jessica and Cheney. Um, you know, Cheney as the beloved of Paul, you know, also being willing to sacrifice her own happiness to some extent um, in order to... Uh, uh, in order to, you know, for, for the political expediency, like Jessica's political expediency. Though Jessica's politi political expediency was never necessary because Duke Leto never married. He might as well have married Jessica. Um, but anyway, um, you know, is there even in some sense a contrast with Paul himself? That is, why end with them? Why not end with Paul? Why don't we, why doesn't the 
bookend with Paul's vision of the future or something, right? Instead, it ends with Jessica and Cheney. Um, and, yeah, again, and, and in a sense, I think, their sacrifice. It, uh, yeah, Nancy says, Paul's story is, unresol is still unresolved. It is. It is. But, and this I maintain, not in a this story needs a sequel kind of way. I know the sequels exist. I'm not trying to deny their existence. But what I mean is, the end of this story does not sound at all to me like a tune in next time when, you know, we, we, and learn what really happens. It doesn't seem that way at all. This does not seem to me a story that's crying out for a sequel. If I didn't know that sequels had been written, I wouldn't have assumed it from reading the end of this story. Um, uh, it, so it is still unresolved. And therefore, to me, again, more interesting that we end the story not focused on him, um, but on the others, on the women, right? The, this, there's this sort of conspiracy, uh, almost, you know, like, you know, we revealed at the end, we have three female characters, four arguable who include Aaliyah, um, though, she's, though she's important, she's, you know, a relatively minor character and not in the whole book. But we have three women whose relationship to Paul is really, you know, who form this sort of constellation around Paul, right? Jessica Cheney and Princess Irulan. Um, and the book ends with one of them talking to the other about the third, right? Um, so that's really interesting. Kevin points out that the book starts with Jessica and ends with Jessica. Um, yes, yes. Um, I, in general, I admire the end of the book. I, it's, it's really complex and interesting. Um, I like how it manages to be almost like a happy ending and a tragic ending at the same time. Right? I mean, on the one hand, Paul wins, right? Um, this story that we've been learning about, the exiled Atreides Duke seeking vengeance for his father, has a happy ending, right? Or rather, like, he wins, right? Hooray! Remember, of course, the question of what does winning look like, but on some level, he wins, right? This is a satisfying conclusion. You know, what happens is a satisfying in some senses, conclusion of this story of Paul's growth. It's a satisfying conclusion to this underdog story, right? Paul, the foundling boy, not exactly foundling, but I guess foundling by the Fremen, foundling boy lost in the desert, you know, exiled from his kingdom, now, you know, comes back at the head of this army and takes over and unaccountably and everything. Um, that, has, that story has a good payoff, and it's a satisfying payoff. Um, to see the Fremen finally get, you know, the, the Fremen story, right? The long waiting of the Fremen finally bears fruit. You know, it's, it's nice to see the Fremen finally win for a change. Even finally get some appreciation and recognition, you know, the Sardaukar and the Emperor's recognition of the fact that the Fremen really are better than the Sardaukar are. That's kind of satisfying too. Um, so, again, on the one hand, the ending does bring the overall story to this, to what seems like it should be a happy ending. Yet, at the same time, it's clearly tragic as well, right? Paul's failed. In how he seemed to be defining winning, he's a failure. 
the jihad is going to happen, in fact, in the very act of winning the outward thing, right? In the act of bringing his underdog story to a, sex, a successful completion, he's lost, right? In that act of winning, he's lost. Um, and what do we see of him? We see him afraid for his life, right? We see him thinking that he's not standing with his back to a door. We see him not recognizing that the universe is full of doors, right? Um, we see him being possibly blinded by his bravura in a similar way to the way the old duke was. And he might not recognize that there's a bull bearing down on him right now. Or he does recognize it, um, you know, in that moment when he sees that he's failed. But what could he have done? Is Paul helpless? See, in the end, this story doesn't seem to me like really a primary contemplation of destiny and free will. Um, it comes up, but it does not seem to me to be the main point. Um, Paul sort of wonders how much freedom he has, right? But he, you know, he tries to assert that freedom, and there's some indication even at the beginning when he's first sort of given this um, you know, first sort of recognizes this task. Um, there's this sense that he, um, uh, that, you know, he's trying and his attempt might be vain to assert his own will in, instead of what he sees is going to happen and what he feels is inevitable. Um, but anyway, he fails. And winning, he's lost. Is there a way that he could have, is there a choice that he made? that could have avoided this. Could Paul have avoided, or at least postponed, the jihad? It seems the answer to this is clearly yes. He could have avoided it. How? How could Paul have avoided the jihad? He saw this. How could he have avoided it? How could he have avoided the jihad? He perceives that his mom is his enemy. He, that is to say, he perceives that by trying to uh, help him to survive and to ensure he finds a home among the Fremen, she's making the jihad come to pass. He perceives that. He seems less quick to perceive the logical corollary of that fact, right? Um, if going along with things and building up the religious mystique and even preserving his life is the instrument of the jihad, the alternative is death. Yeah, and, and, and I think there are two alternatives. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think, you know, Neil and Philip Menzies have both pointed right to them. Neil says he could have been killed by Janus. If he's killed by Janus, it's over. Right? Because, remember, that fight was not just about him being accepted among the Fremen. It was over what Jameis was challenging. Was He was challenging that he was the Lizam al-Gaib, was challenging that the legends were coming true in him. Had Jameis won, it's not just that he is eliminated before his legend has a chance to grow, but his elimination disproves the fact, the idea that he was the Lizam al-Gaib. Um... Yes, it would have happened anyway, despite his death, after he's killed Jameis. 
that's when he has that insight. Remember that moment when he says, the only thing now that can pre pre prevent the jihad is the death of me and my mom and of everybody here? But that's after he's killed Jameis. Again, Jameis is the moment where... Um, Jameis is the, the... The death of Jameis is the moment where his... Um, his status is being proven. But, Philip, I agree with you. There is another option, right, that we were looking at before. He could have destroyed the spice. And that would have destroyed himself, too, as the guild people were quick to point out to him, right? That would have prevented the jihad. It would have had some other big consequences also, but uh, it would have prevented the jihad. Um, in fact, it seems it would have uh, prevented the jihad in a far more... Um, in a far more emphatic way. In fact, that seems to be the one way, um, just as the guild looms as this huge, powerful, and nebulous thing which exerts its power over all of mankind, and the only way that you can get power over it is to threaten to destroy the spice, right? So too, because of the monopoly of the guild, the same is true, same, same, one is tempted to say the same thing of the race consciousness, right? That it's this big nebulous thing looming over all of mankind, um, exerting power over all of mankind, and the only way to defeat it is to destroy the spice. The spice is destroyed. Space travel is gone. You know, take that race consciousness, right? Get used to stagnation race consciousness because there's not going to be any mixing up of the gene pools, right? The gene pools are now divided into a whole bunch of static little gene pools from now on. Just take that, right? But he doesn't do it. He's unwilling to die. He wants to preserve his own life. See, notice how Paul's always been trying to have it both ways. I perceive that my mother's training of me and her schemes with the Fremen is leading to the Jihad. But I'm going to carry on with pursuing them, right? Even past the point where Jessica herself is comfortable with it. I'm going to carry on pursuing it and say that I'm still trying to resist the jihad. Uh, how, Paul? He has so many insights into the fact that what he's doing, that it's, it's not going to prevent the jihad at all. Um, and yet, he carries on. Um, but, again, thinking about not just the character of Paul, but about the ending of the story in general. Frank Herbert pulls both of these things off. That is the triumphant ending and the tragic ending. He pulls them both off simultaneously to a degree I could scarcely have envisioned. Um, when you think about it in the abstract, um, I think it's amazing, amazing how he's able to do a story which ends in simultaneous triumph and tragedy. Um, not just mingled together, but um, but uh, uh, but sort of parallel and simultaneous. Uh, and I think, it's, I think it's stunning the way that he does that. But I have to admit I'm not 100% happy with the end. I don't love the ending of this book in itself, mostly because I do kind of wish it would pull things together a little bit better. There's something that I talked about, the Howitt thing, which bothers me a little bit. I also get a little bit bothered by Baron Harkonnen at the end. He was an awesome villain for three-quarters of the book, and then he just gets dumb at the end. Um, 
Baron Harkonnen, you know, who is extremely devious, becomes really simple-minded and, and silly at the end, um, almost a farce. And it's not that that's not satisfying in some ways. I mean, it's nice to see him lose not only his life but his dignity. But, um, but I still can't be super satisfied with that ending. Um, uh, but anyway, so even though even though I, I I feel like the ending isn't completely perfect, um, it's uh, I think it still succeeds way more than. Uh, than I could ever have predicted. Okay, well, I've kept you guys late because it's the last night, and uh, you know I, I can't come back to this at the beginning of class next time. Um, so thank you for your patience and bearing with me. And next, Watership Down. Um, so I will be posting the schedule for Watership Down. We're going to start that. Um, we're, lo- we're, we're looking at this point at the beginning of November for starting Watership Down. Um, one general disclaimer. If you've not read Watership Down and you've only seen the movie, promise me that you will not judge the book by the movie. Um, we'll talk about the movie. I'm, I, we may, you know, we may even. I, I'm, I'm willing to even schedule a class session to discuss the film at the end. Um, but the thing that bothers me most—it's not a horrible movie in the same sense in which the Dune movie was a horrible movie. Um, but the thing that bothers me about the Watership Down movie is that I felt the movie completely butchered the fundamental spirit of the story, and it really, really troubled. That really, really troubled me. But anyway, um, I hope you'll join me for Watership Down. It's going to be a lot of fun, uh, and the book is awesome. So start reading, uh, start reading Watership Down. Thank you again for joining me for the Dune class. This has been great. Um, you guys have been a lot of fun, and I hope you guys will. Uh, will come back and join me, not just for Watership Down, but for all of the classes that we're looking forward to in the coming year, thanks to uh, the generosity of our supporters and our campaign. Um, so, and we, I am planning on, uh, uh, Neil, I think you asked this way at the beginning of class, I am still planning to stick to Wednesday nights um, for the Watership Down class. Um, I, I do so. Uh, the, uh, um, the Watership Down Wednesday nights starting the beginning of November. That's the tentative. We'll, we'll, we'll post the uh, schedule on the website. But for now, tentatively, that's what, uh, that's what we're looking at. So you can work on that presumption. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I enjoyed studying Dune with you and look forward to future books. Thanks very much. Good night.